If you turn with me to the passage today, which today's teaching is based, John chapter 12. Awesome text. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and they're throwing a feast for Jesus, in honor of Jesus. And this is a remarkable teaching that follows, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to, to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is God's word. For the past few weeks, this is the start of our launch, our pre-launch. We've been looking at the question, the most important question that one could ask and possibly could come to a conclusion about, and that is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we have been learning over the series of the last several weeks that Jesus, that John tries to answer the question, who is Jesus, using many metaphors, that he's our center, that he's our healing, that he's our access, that he's our security and our defense. And here's this passage this narrative where we see Mary, her anointing of Jesus' feet. And I'm going to read a couple of verses here that come and they follow this text because as Mary anoints Jesus' feet, Jesus teaches about what's happening. You see this in chapter 12, verse 25 to 26, because every single time in the the book of John, when there's an incident or an event that takes place or some sort of miracle or or action, um, Jesus follows it up with a teaching or he precedes it with a teaching. Verse 25 to 26. Here's a teaching, an explanation of what Mary was doing. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus is making startling, radical comments about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You want to save your life? Then you have to lose it. You have to lose it. If you lose your life, if you hate your life, if you deny yourself, then you're going to find it. You're going to discover it. You're going to keep it. You're going to gain it. Now, in other words, what that means is that Christian life is upside down. It's uh, counterintuitive to our natural instincts. For example, before you come to Christ, before you become a Christian, your natural instinct is to reject Christianity and its lifestyle. Why? Because you think it's going to be the death of your joy. It's going to be the death of your freedom. It's going to be the death of your options. Your options are going to get limited. Your potential is going to get limited. When it actually is the source of your joy, the source of your options, the source of your freedom, the source of your potential. Mary, 
He's the sister of Lazarus and Martha. If you've read anything about the Bible in the past you know, decade of your life, you're going to remember stories about Mary and Martha. Martha's always serving. She's always serving. Uh, she's always working. And Mary is always sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, what happens, what she does here is so remarkable. It teaches us what it really means to follow Jesus. And it's counterintuitive. How's it counterintuitive? There's going to be three very simple lessons. The first one is the longest. It's called giving up. The second one is giving all. And the third one is giving in. Giving up, giving all, giving in. Giving up, you have to surrender. Giving all, that's everything you have, everything you are. And giving in, that's power. Power to do all these things. Now, if you lose yourself, Jesus says you're going to discover yourself. If you give up your life, you're going to gain your life. You're going to experience and discover your true potential. First, giving up. Mary demonstrates absolute surrender. Verse 3. Let's kind of walk this through. Verse 3. Mary comes in. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary does three things that are absolutely disgraceful, absolutely horrendous, completely offensive to the people around her, so despicable that everyone starts to turn around and starts to yell at her. And Jesus says, leave her alone. What she is doing is remarkable. What does she do? First, she pours out a pint of pure nard. It is an expensive perfume. It's found in other parts of the world, so to acquire it, it costs a tremendous amount of money. This was most likely, I mean, it said that Judas later on says that this is worth a year's wages. A year's wages. 300 denarii. One denarius is about a day's wages. So we're talking about a year's worth of salary will go into purchasing something like this. This was most likely something that she received as a family heirloom. And it, what, what was the purpose of this? It's something that was going to be used to hedge against disaster. It was like her investment, a security against financial ruin. Your 401k, your 403b. And if you think about what's going on, there's this party that's been held in Jesus' honor. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and people are now starting to trickle in. They saw this, and people are trying to visit Jesus, they're trying to meet Jesus, they're trying to visit uh, Lazarus to see who Lazarus is, for that matter. And Martha's serving, Martha's doing what Martha does, she's serving. And all of a sudden, Mary comes in. She walks up to Jesus, and there are many passages in, in the Gospels that kind of depict this, and some people say she held an alabaster jar. She pours this expensive perfume with the year's wages over Jesus' feet, and everyone's aghast. They're all horrified. Pouring out the pint of pure nard. Judas Iscariot says, what a waste. This could have been sold. You have gotten a year's wages for this. It could have been given to the poor. What a waste. The act was so outrageous. The entire room is rebuking her. The second thing she does is it says she put on Jesus' feet. These are the ancient times. The roads were terrible back then. They were dirty. They were dusty. The footwear was terrible back in the day. And we're talking about the Middle East. Hot, humid climate and temperature. And there was no deodorant. So if you think about it, you know, to walk from one distance, because there was no public transportation, there was no... Everyone walked to where they were going... To get to a banquet 
Everybody carried with them a small pouch filled with some sort of ointment or perfume because the moment you walk in, if you wanted to have a pleasant banquet, you would dab one another, either in the forehead or in your hair, with perfume. And you would kind of dab your feet with this perfume so that it would hide the smell because everything and everyone smells so badly. And so here's, this, here's Mary. She comes in and what does she do? She pours it over Jesus' feet. Everybody's horrified. Why? Because the feet were the dirtiest, smelliest part of your body. And she's here wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. With her hair. And uh, this act was so offensive, the entire room is rebuking her. The third thing she does is she wipes the feet with her hair. The hair in ancient Middle Eastern times, even today, is considered a woman's glory. Actually, anybody in that world is considered their glory. It's considered their honor. You never let your hair down in public. No woman lets their hair down in public. It was a disgraceful act to do that. She unties her hair, lets it down, and actually white pieces his feet with her hair. And if you think about passages like in 2 Samuel, Absalom, the son of David, he's the son of David, and he conspires actually against David. He stages a rebellion against his own father. But it was known throughout that book that Absalom's glory was in his hair. He took a lot of pride and glory in his hair. And the ultimate irony that as he's kind of fighting this guerrilla warfare battle against his father, how did they recognize who he was? His hair gets trapped in branches and he's hanging. The ultimate irony that your glory would be your downfall. Mary's glory, her hair. The crowd is aghast. She's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Now why did she do this? Because it completely goes against logic. It's completely, at the same time, completely remarkable. They're yelling at her. But she's saying, first, the perfume, I'm giving up. I'm giving up my security. The feet, wiping the feet, I'm giving up my pride, my dignity. The hair, I'm giving up my glory. I'm giving up my honor. Jesus says, leave her alone. With the perfume, she's saying, I'm willing to give up my security. I'm willing to give up my comfort. Because you were the real comfort. You were the only true security in my life. This is her entire investment. Her entire financial security is at stake. Security for generations to come, her entire family, in spite of the cost, we're talking about radical generosity. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus encounters a rich young ruler. And as he encounters this rich young ruler, uh, this man's a very well-respected man, says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to follow the law. And the man says, I've done that. So what does Jesus say? He looks at him with compassion. And he says, go, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And a text in Mark chapter 10 says, the man walked away sad because he had great wealth. The man walked away sad because he had great wealth. He couldn't give it up. Mary here is saying that there's no act of devotion that you cannot ask of me. There's a story of a missionary, Helen Rosevere, Helen Rosevere, famous missionary, who went off to a faraway land and repeatedly was raped. Now, before even going on missions, she said that whenever she would come across something that required something of her, she would ask, logically ask herself, is it worth it? And she would do her calculations, and if it was worth it, she would do it. But at the peak of her time as a missionary, being after being raped multiple times, she would ask herself, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? And she would get on her knees and pray. 
Is it really worth it? And sometimes the conclusion that you arrive to is, no, it is not worth it. Until one day a still small voice, she said, would call out to her. Alan Rosalie, the question is not, is it worth it? The question is, am I worth it? And if you read her annals, she writes back and she responds and she says, Lord, you are more than worthy. You are worth it. Mary is saying that there is no act of devotion, no act of devotion that you cannot ask of me. Now with the pouring of the oil on Jesus' feet and the wiping, Mary is saying there's no act of devotion that's beneath my dignity. There's no act of devotion that's beneath my pride. It's natural, it's very natural for us to say there's certain things that I will not do. There's certain things that I just cannot do. There's certain dirty jobs. In fact, in this day and age, there were laws that protected servants. If you were an indentured servant or a slave, there were laws that protected these servants from dealing with people's feet and banquet. So you can only imagine the horror. And next chapter, in John chapter 13, what does Jesus do? He's washing the disciples' feet. What's John trying to show us here? Jesus, Mary, is wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. And what is she saying? That there's no act of devotion that's beneath me, that's beneath my dignity, beneath my pride. John the Baptist, in the early part of John, says what? That one is going to come whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Why? Because there were laws that prevented you, actually, from unlatching one another's sandals if you were a servant. It was such a demeaning act. Radical humility. When things go wrong, it's easy for us to complain. And when you're complaining and grumbling, what you're doing is you're saying, you owe me a better life. You owe me a better life because I have my devotion, because I'm devoted to you. So what happens is, in your anger and your frustration, you step all over people, you ignore other types of people. Why? Because you're pride. What you're saying is, there are certain people that are beneath my dignity. There are certain people that are beneath my pride. There are certain things I'm not willing to do because it's beneath my dignity, beneath my pride. We're saying, I want or I need to be special. I want to feel special. Mary dropped the entire notion that she deserved a better life. There's nothing beneath my dignity. No one is beneath my dignity. She wiped his feet with her hair. What Mary's saying is, I'm willing to disgrace myself. I'm willing to deny myself. I'm willing to lay down my honor for your honor. I'm willing to lay down my glory for your glory. And when you say, I'm willing to give up my security, I'm willing to give up my pride, I'm willing to give up my honor for you, what you're saying is this. They're saying, I worship you. That's worship. To experience and submit the ultimate worth of something that you love. To take something and ascribe ultimate value, ultimate worth. In this act, very simple act of sacrifice, what Mary is saying is, you are everything. You are so much everything that everything that I have, it's important. These things are valuable. Obviously, she understands the value of these things, but I consider them loss. When you say that I'm willing to give up everything, you're saying is that I worship. Until you say, you owe me nothing, I owe you everything, you're never going to have radical generosity. You're never going to have radical humility. In this case, wiping your feet with her hair, letting her hair down, radical confidence. You're never going to be able to have radical confidence unless you're able to say, you owe me nothing, I owe you everything. You are my everything. Until you say that, you can't follow Jesus. You can't follow Jesus. Being good, being moral, 
pray, having a good prayer life, you know, having Bible study, knowing and memorizing, understanding the Bible, but if you can't say that there is nothing beneath my security, there's nothing, uh, you know, beneath my dignity, beneath my pride, there's nothing beneath my honor. Deep down, what you're saying is, I deserve a better life. In the book of Leviticus, it's a book that very few people read. The book of Leviticus is a book of holiness laws. And when you think about the holiness of God, what do you think? God sets himself apart. We know God to be otherworldly. He's completely set apart. So for us to reside with God, we have to be set apart. We have to set ourselves apart from him. He calls us out. He says, I need you to be set apart. I want you to be set apart for me. But when you say that you owe me a better life, there are things that are actually beneath me. There are things that I actually regard as below me. It means you're either using God. You could be using God. So you're either using God, or you're going to make yourself fully available for God to use you. Why do you obey? Some of us struggle with obedience, the, the, the commitment that comes with spirituality. Why do we commit? Why do we struggle? Why are we good? Why do we try to live good lives? Is it to feel accepted? Is it to feel accepted? Or, or because you're absolutely assured that God has set his eyes on you? Do you obey because you are accepted? Or do you, do you obey uh, in order to become accepted? Mary is saying, take my life. I'm dead to the world. I'm alive only in you. This is what it means to be holy. That's the true meaning of holiness. Now, if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, and you're, you know, can you even make yourself available to be open to come before a God like this? Because if you're not, then you're never going to find him. He's either going to be too remarkable or he's going to be too irrational, but you're going to miss him altogether. One of my favorite preachers says, you know, the religious could never do this. You know, you could be sitting here and saying, well, that sounds awfully religious. Give up everything. Give up, give up yourself. The religious, here's what I want to submit to you. The religious, they can't do this. Christianity is not a religion. That's why it's not a religion. Think, look at the religious in this text. Judas Iscariot, follower of Jesus for three years. What does he do? He's rebuking them. They're outraged by her. The disciples, everybody in the room. Religious people, they like to pour out. They like to give themselves. They go to the feet of Jesus, but they can't let down their hair. They can't let down their hair. You know why? Because you only did these kind of things at home. You only did these kind of things where you have to be accepted. You know, that's when you let down your hair. The religious people all struggle with that. They're never sure. They're never sure whether or not they're really accepted. So they don't have a home. They don't feel like they have a home. They're, they're never sure if they're acceptable to God. They're always concerned as a result of their reputation. They're always concerned about culture. They're always concerned about their status before people. Why? Because they're never comfortable with their place in the world. They don't have the confidence of looking at Incredibly confident. Utter confidence. So confident. This isn't religious fanaticism. You know why? Because fanatics... They do what they do to be noticed by God as well. They separate themselves. They call themselves holy. They separate themselves. But fanatics, they're tremendously outspoken about Jesus. They, in fact, they look for suffering. They look to pour out their lives. But really, they're being religious. Why? Because they can't let their hair down. 
They still can't let their hair down. They're still not at home with Jesus. They're still proving their worth to Jesus. Mary did this out of intimacy. She did it out of her relationship. She can let her hair down in front of Jesus. Now, in those days, you could be divorced. Your husband could divorce you for letting your hair down in public. That's a serious of an offense that was. Because what you're saying is, I'm willing to let myself be naked before you. But this isn't the first time that someone's done that. In the Old Testament, King David, the ark was finally coming into Jerusalem. It was actually out there in the fringes of Israel after fighting many battles that got lost. And now they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. The ark represented the presence of God. What do you see David doing? You know, it, near the throne, what's David doing? He's dancing. He's not just dancing. He's naked. He's, he has no clothes. He's naked and he's dancing. And, and it's so offensive. And there's such a mockery that, that the royal court, the people in the palace that are looking at him and actually mocking him. They're making fun of him. But David, why does he do that? Because he has such a relationship. There's such intimacy with the Father. God is near and he wants to be close. Coming to the gospel, it looks like humility, and it looks brave all at the same time. Because you've given up your security and your comfort. Why? Because Jesus is your comfort. Jesus is your security. You've given up yourself. You've lost yourself. And as a result, you realize who you really are in Him. It's counterintuitive. It's saying that a future without Jesus is no future at all, no matter what I have. No matter what semblance of security or comfort or what kind of wealth I have, all these things are nothing compared to what I have with you. That's what it means to give up. Second, what she did was she gave all. You give all as a follower of Christ. Judas is rebuking her. Verse 5, Judas says, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. It was worth a year's wages. In other words, the cost, it's illogical. The cost of the ointment, a year wages. Think about it. Take your annual salary. Some of you make a lot of money. Some of you make a mediocre amount of money. But regardless, for us, it's still, whatever we have, it's a lot of money. Take your entire salary. Spend it in one shot for one gift that you pour out for somebody that you love. It hurts. Instantly, you're poor. Instantly, you've become poor. In one instance, you've wasted, you've thrown away. Something that sustains you for an entire year. Judas is saying, you know, you could take this money and you could have, you could have sold, you could have earned this money and given it and you could have fed many people with this. Jesus says, the poor you will always have, you will always have. The poor you will always have. He's not demeaning the poor. He's not minimizing the need of the poor. But he's providing a counterintuitive way of measuring value, measuring worth. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a story, it's a parable, of what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a pearl of great price. And he talks about the people who come across this treasure, and the people who come across this pearl. The man who finds this treasure is willing to give up everything that he's got. Is willing, The man who finds this clam is willing to give up everything that he's got. He's going to sell his entire life possession. Why? So that he can purchase this deal because he knows what's in the field. On the outside, it doesn't look like much, but he knows the treasure. That's a On the outside, it's just a clam. But he knows the treasure. And, and Jesus, he says, that's what the kingdom is like. 
incredible worth in something ordinary. The person who discovers it finds so much value that he's willing to give up everything that he has to get it. <laughs> Judas says, you know, you could have sold it. The money, such an enormous amount of money, we could have used it to pay the poor. But this moment is down that there's nothing above. There's nothing above. There's nothing that you can do. And fo- so following Jesus costs, but your relationship with Jesus is worth so much more if you have it. So valuable that there is nothing that you're not willing to give up. But some people who struggle with a particular relationship. And, uh, you know, what does the gospel do? The gospel says the love that I lose for the sake of Christ is nothing compared to the love that I have in Christ. For some of us, we struggle with money, our finances. We're saying that the money that I lose, having the treasure in that bank account, is nothing compared to being treasured by Christ, to being treasured, loved, accepted by Jesus. What about your comfort? What about your security? What about your status? What about your pedigree? What about your approval? We're saying that these things are absolutely nothing compared to the eternal security, the lasting comfort, the lasting peace, the love and the acceptance that I gained in Christ. Is it logical to put your hope, to pin your hope eternal satisfaction in that one job that you have? You think finding a career path, the right career path, is going to guarantee eternal satisfaction and fulfillment? Do you think that that one degree that you're struggling for, I just have it, pedigree will guarantee me status? Do you think you will in the pit your entire eternal, the weight of eternal satisfaction on the hopes of a, of a master's degree? You think you found yourself when you have this approval, but you really lost yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. These things are nothing compared to what you have in Christ. That's how you find your true self. Now, the church throughout the ages, they didn't become generous out of a, out of an overwhelming sense of guilt. If you know anything, there's a book called The Rise of Christianity. It's written by a secular man, Rodney Stark. He was examining and doing research on how the church actually made it out of the first century at all. I mean, the claims of Jesus are so outrageous. How did the church survive? And he did a tremendous amount of research. He actually has empirical data over the course of his research. And he found that the church throughout the ages, they didn't become generous because they were guilty, because out of a sense of guilt. You know why? Because they were all poor. Most of the people who started the early church were poor. So they had no guilt. They were the poor. They didn't, they didn't become generous. There wasn't a radical generosity because of an overwhelming sense of, the, of, a, of a superiority. It's not like they had a superiority complex. You know why? Because the, the people who started coming to the church in the beginning were the ones who were disfranchised. They were the widows. They were the orphans. They were the, uh, the people without status. They were sick. The church became radically generous because they discovered a source of eternal comfort. They discovered a source of eternal security. They discovered a source of eternal wealth, eternal approval. And it was more real than the illusion of money. As real as money is to us, it was more than it made money look look like an illusion. It made our relationships, power, sex, all these kind of things an illusion. They gave all that they had. They gave all that they were, all their gifts. And they did it with joy. And they were glad, sometimes even in opposition. 
So coming to Jesus, becoming a follower of Jesus means that you're giving up. You're giving up your security. You're giving up your future in many ways, your earthly future. But it also means that you're giving, you're giving uh, all that you are, all that you have. Lastly, it means that you're giving in. Why does Mary do what she does? This part really got me. Why does Mary do what she does? If it's because you're trying to reconcile with God on your own, because you have guilt or because you have shame, it's going to wear you out. That kind of life is going to wear you out. It's going to burn you out. You're going to say, I'm going to work and I'm going to work. I'm going to prove to God that he didn't go wrong, he didn't make a mistake, and it's going to burn you out. And you're not going to have joy. And you're going to get angry at other people and angry at yourself. And you're going to have self-pity. And you're going to have malice towards others. And it's going to corrode your soul. It's going to consume you. It's going to leave you morally and spiritually bankrupt. There are other motivations for why we come to the Lord. There are other motivations for why we follow Jesus. Sometimes we follow Jesus because we say, if I follow Jesus, then God will listen to me. He owes me. Where I need to follow Jesus because I'm guilty every day, every week, it's going to lead you to more guilt. You know why? Because you know, you can suck you using God. And it doesn't work. That's why there's going to be more guilt. You know you're using God. Jesus teaches, verse 17, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume from the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She did this for my burial. In other words, she knows that I'm Nagasu. It was intended for my burial, but she did it right then. She doesn't Nagasu. Mary saw something that the disciples didn't see. How did Mary see this? What did Mary see? All throughout the scriptures and the Gospels, Mary comes up multiple times. But every single time Mary comes up throughout the Gospels, where is she? She's at Jesus' feet. Luke chapter 10, Martha's running and preparing food for the disciples. Where is Mary? Sitting at Jesus' feet. John chapter 11, Lazarus, her brother, died. Jesus intentionally shows up four days later. And Martha runs out first and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would still be alive. And what does Jesus give her? A teaching. He starts teaching her. Then Mary comes in, and Mary falls at Jesus' feet. And says, Lord, if you've been here, my brother would not have died. Does Jesus give her instruction? No. Jesus says, take me to where he is. And he soothes her. And during the course of this time of sitting and listening to Jesus, sitting and listening to Jesus' teaching, studying who Jesus is, Mary saw something. What did she see? Here's Jesus in front of the grave, the burial place of Lazarus. What did she see? His compassion. It said twice that he was moved by Lazarus' death. She saw Jesus' compassion. It said that Jesus wept. She saw that. Jesus is moved. She bring, he brings Lazarus back from the dead. He, she sees Jesus as his power, and it starts to click. In John chapter 11, she sees this. And from here you know, it mentions this in the latter half of John chapter 11, that the tide is starting to turn against Jesus. After raising Lazarus back from the dead, people start to plot Jesus' death. And even at this dinner, this gathering in Jesus' honor, many were coming to visit Jesus, and many were coming to visit Lazarus. In fact, some were plotting against Lazarus as well. So the tide and the sentiment about Jesus is starting to change. And, Jesus, and she sees this. Mary's listening. She's starting to get it. Why would Lazarus be brought back from the dead? What about the cost? 
Who's going to pay this cost? Because that's what death does. Death is the ultimate cost of our sin. And in John chapter 12, what does she do? She falls at Jesus' feet again and is wiping his feet with her hair. Why? Because she realized he would be lost. She realized that he would die in her place. Jesus is weeping at the loss of Lazarus. Mary is weeping and wiping his feet with her tears. Mary is weeping at the loss of Christ at her cost. Because of her. The cost of, of Lazarus' sin, the cost of her sin, overwhelmed Jesus. Now she's overwhelmed. Why? Because she sees Jesus. She's overwhelmed at the cost of sin, at the price of Jesus. The cost of sin moved Jesus to the point where he went at Jesus at Lazarus' uh, funeral. This cost is moving Mary. She's preparing for Jesus' funeral. It's very She's grateful. She has joy. You know, other motivations, they hammer you. They hammer you into repentance. They hammer you into obedience. And that feels hard. And that feels like it hurts. But Jesus' love and his compassion and his grace and his mercy and his power, it melts us into surrender. It melts us into giving up. It melts us into giving all that we are. It melts us into giving all that we have. It melts us into giving in. You see, because if you're trying still to earn God's favor, you haven't given in. You haven't given in. That's why it's leading to the corrosion. And in this case, Mary lets down the hammer. Some of us, we're still trying to earn. We're still trying to earn God's approval. We're still trying to earn God's acceptance. You know what's happening? You're still feeling the hammer. But if you look at Jesus on the cross and see that he took the hammer, he took the ultimate hammer for you, you've got to let that melt your heart into God's love and into God's embrace. Mary saw the gospel. Mary saw the gospel. She poured her life out. She poured out everything that she had because she knew, what, what's he going to do? Jesus woke Lazarus. Why? Jesus woke Lazarus from his death sleep because he's going to enter into a death sleep. On the cross, Jesus, the exact radiance of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of who God is. He's sweeter than perfume, and yet he will be broken. It's Jesus' blood that will pour down in front of what? The feet of everyone who's going to despise him. They're insulting him. They're despising him on the cross, and yet his blood is being poured out before their feet. Jesus' blood is going to fill the air with the stench of death. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? The hammer of your wrath because of sin. The weight of the sin has now fallen on me and you have despised me as well. So the weight of God's glory and his grace and his love will cover us, will cover you. That's what's going to melt us. That's what's going to melt us into God's heart. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 14, Psalm chapter 22 is a messianic psalm. It's a prophetic psalm about Jesus and the suffering that he's going to endure on the cross. And in verse 14, what does it say? Jesus is saying, I am being poured out like water. Later on in the book of Philippians, Paul the Apostle, Philippians chapter 2, says what? I am being poured out like a drink offering. And I'm glad. And I rejoice. How can we rejoice? When you look to the, how does the gospel, how does the gospel allow us, empower us to rejoice? How do you know that the love of God that awakens you from your death sleep will awaken your heart to serve Jesus with everything that you are and everything that you, that you have? 
if you see that Jesus died for you, if you trust that Jesus rose again for you, if you know that his spirit, that's power, is living in you, that's power. That's assurance. That's comfort. That's peace. It's going to fill you with warmth. It's going to fill you with security. It's going to fill you with comfort. It's going to fill you with riches and wealth and abundant joy and treasure and worth and acceptance. Everything that we've been longing for all our lives. And it's going to give you boldness and courage and bravery and humility. Look at the cross. See that he owed you nothing and gave up everything for you. Everything for you. He gave up his security and his power and his wealth. He gave all of himself. He gave all that he had. All that he was. And on the cross when he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. What is he saying? Jesus gave up. Jesus gave up. Jesus gave in. And if you trust that he did that eternally, ultimately for you, then the little that we have, we can give. The little that we are, in our weakness, we can give. Because he is our riches. Because he is our wealth. Our ultimate source of wealth. Give in to him. Can you give in to him today? If you're still working for God's favor, if you still feel guilt in your life, what you're saying is, the cross wasn't enough. You give in to the cross today. If you're saying, no, I still need to do things, otherwise I don't feel like I'm worthy. Will you give in to the cross? Will you give in to what the Lord has done by sending His Son to die for us and give all of yourself to Him? That's going to be the beginning. That's not the end of joy. That's the beginning of joy. Will you give all of yourself then to Him in worship today? Let's pray.